actually feel that my water is unsafe every day. I don't believe we're doing enough to uh, filter the water from contaminants. I've installed a home system in hopes that my water is safer, in hopes that it's filtering out some of the things that our city water cannot filter out. But yes, I'm very concerned about our water. In my area, we have well water, very southeast Georgia area, very rural, but we can't expect well water to be great. So we drink bottled water. We live in a city that has very dirty drinking water. We're right next to the Mississippi, which has a lot of runoff from the northern states and from any agricultural pollution. And so a lot of our drinking water, it just has so much stuff in it. And I buy my water. Many of us probably start the day with a glass of water. We might take a warm shower, brush our teeth, wash our faces. But the over 2 million Americans who live without running water aren't afforded this luxury. Native American households are 19 times more likely to lack indoor plumbing than white households. And Black and Latino homes are twice as likely. That's according to the U.S. Water Alliance. And even when you have running water, that doesn't mean it's safe. It's the hottest time of the year. We're rolling out a new series that wades deep into the politics and policies surrounding water. Throughout the series, we'll explore topics such as flooding and global sea rise. But first, we start with the communities that can't access safe water. After the break, we head to the Navajo Nation, where one in three homes don't have running water. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Join us for future conversations by downloading the 1A Vox Pop app and leaving us a voicemail. We're discussing access to safe drinking water. Joining us from Arizona is Emma Robbins. She's the executive director of the Navajo Water Project. That's an indigenous-led branch of Dig Deep, a nonprofit working to bring clean water to communities across the country. She's also Diné and grew up in the Navajo Nation. Emma, thank you for speaking with us. What are the challenges your community is facing around water access right now? As you mentioned, one in three Navajo families don't have access to clean running water. And this is an issue because we're still in a pandemic. And if you don't have clean running water, you don't have water to take care of yourself, whether that is cleaning your hands, cleaning your home, or if you have to go and haul water from locations where there might be a lot of people and you're coming into contact with the virus. In addition to that, there's a drought. As you mentioned, it's the hottest time of the year. And so the water sources that we do have are depleted. On the Navajo Nation, we have hundreds of abandoned uranium mines. And so water sources that people might have access to are not always safe. If you had to point to an issue that's, that's really at the core of this access and safety problem, what would you say that is? There are multiple issues, you know, lack of funding, the fact that we are Native peoples and oftentimes we're forgotten by the federal government and by fellow Americans, and we face a lot of dehumanization. So when we're dehumanized and we're still things like mascots or we're seen as jokes, how are we going to get something that is the most important, which would be running water? As I said, you grew up on the Navajo Nation. You had running water, but much of your family didn't. Can you just help us understand the day-to-day challenges you witnessed growing up? That's correct. I grew up in the largest community on the Navajo Nation, which is called Tuba City, but about half an hour away is where my family is from. And that is where some of the highest concentrations of abandoned uranium mines are. And so 
I want to speak particularly about my grandparents, them being elders and them being the leaders of the family, the things that they had to do was haul water. And that is a really big issue because if you're an elder, you're not always able to do that. And and can you explain that process? What does hauling water look like? Yeah, of course. So hauling water is when you go to a public watering point and you fill things like barrels, large barrels, or smaller things like gallon jugs. And so it's a way to transport water from this source to your house, whether that's for human consumption or animal consumption, we're very tied to our livestock. And it's a really big problem because you need something like a truck. And oftentimes roads on the Navajo Nation are not passable. Right now we're in a monsoon season, despite it being a drought, You know, we're seeing a lot of heavy rainfall. And that can be a huge issue because the roads are in really poor condition. So you're taking water from one location in a truck, if you have it, hauling it to your home. And if not, you're buying bottled water and you're having to go to grocery stores that might be off the reservation. And as we all know, gas and fuel is so expensive right now. So it's really hauling water or taking water from one point and bringing it to another, to your home. I'm trying to imagine just the the day-to-day challenges that presents when it comes to, you know, bathing or cooking or just, you know, having something safe to drink. How did your family navigate that difficulty? I think growing up, you know, my story is not unique. There are so many people who are my age who still don't have access to clean running water, people who are younger. And so what did I do this morning? I got up, I took my medicine, I made coffee. That's a challenge because not everybody can do that easily. You know, you do have water in your home if you got the bottled water, if you took it from the one location to another, but it's a question of rationing it. Are you going to have enough throughout the day? Is the water safe? Where are you gonna get it from next time? You know, it takes up a huge mental space. And I've seen this in family and friends and community members where it's not just that I don't have the water in my home. It's always the constant, where is it going to come from? And, you know, that can be a huge issue because you also don't have a flush toilet in your home if you don't have clean access, excuse me, if you don't have access to clean running water. And oftentimes people have outhouses that can be further away from their homes. And that's an issue, you have to walk there and it's a sanitation issue. And so it's everything that affects you. Again, I think it's really important to highlight that this is a huge cause of emotional stress. A big part of your job is getting water to communities. What does that process look like for you? It is a process. It's really important to mention that we do partner with local organizations and communities because I think oftentimes people have a misconception that you can go into communities, you can just dig a well, there's going to be safe water, you connect people. But it's really important to build these projects from the the ground up where there's a strong base. And so that's how our project starts. We identify safe water sources. Uh, Those safe water sources need things like new tanks or filtration. We put that in. And then we'll survey homes And we figure out what is the best method to get people running water. Is it installing an off-grid system, which is then filled up by a series of water trucks that are bringing safe water? Is it connecting these families to water lines that are close by? 
it's really important that we use the appropriate technology to make sure that people are getting safe running water. Well, in May, Department of Interior Secretary Deb Holland joined leaders from Utah and the Navajo Nation to sign the Navajo-Utah Water Rights Settlement Agreement, and it was part of President Joe Biden's infrastructure law. The portion of the Navajo Nation that's in Utah will receive $210 million for drinking water infrastructure. What difference will that make? It will get a portion of people clean running water, and there still will be people who won't get it. Arizona and Utah border is very particular, and it's been hard to work in where we also work in because of the jurisdiction. You know, we are a native nation, we're a sovereign nation, we're domestically dependent, but we still do need assistance from the federal government, from the state government, from the county government. And when you have this border between our land, it becomes difficult. And so there might be homes that are literally right on the border that we will see who won't get access to clean running water. So it it will help. $210 million is a large amount of money, but you have to think about the amount of homes that are spread out in the area. And connecting water lines are not cheap. You've said that, quote, any issue with Native nations and the federal government, things like infrastructure, like water and electricity, it's definitely rooted in broken treaties. What do you mean? In treaties, we were promised things like infrastructure or that we would receive certain things that would make our lives, you know, more, quote unquote, modern or easier. And the federal government did things like take our lands or push us onto one portion of the United States. And we were not given the things that were promised in the treaties, like infrastructure or like things, again, that would make our lives, quote unquote, more modern. And that happens with so many things, with healthcare, with water, with electricity. And now one thing that we see that I personally think needs to be added to the treaties or updated to the things that we need are items like Wi-Fi, because we can't live a normal life that we're supposed to when it comes to schooling, when it comes to taking care of ourselves, unless we have these things. So the government has not upheld any side of their bargain for the majority of treaties, and we are suffering as a result. You mentioned your grandparents, and your grandmother passed away from stomach cancer after uranium was found in her drinking water. So this is, this is personal to you. What do you want people to understand about water access in your community? Water access is a luxury. You know, now I live in Los Angeles, where our organization is headquartered. And I can turn on a tap, and it's really easy. As you mentioned, there are over 2 million Americans that don't have that luxury, and Native Americans are 19 times more likely. In our community, it's important that we take care of one another. You know, oftentimes people will say things like, oh, I can't believe the work that you're doing. I can't believe the work that your team is doing. But there are so many of us out there who are trying to care for our communities. And so when we have the solutions and when we have the tools, whether it's funding, whether it's technology, whether it's actual systems and parts that we can put water in, when those things are put into the hands of community members who are there to take care of ourselves and to take care of our elders and families, we can make really great things happen. That's Emma Robbins, the executive director of the Navajo Water Project. That's an indigenous-led branch of Dig Deep, a nonprofit working to bring clean water to communities across the country. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you.
Let's bring a couple new voices into the conversation. Maura Allaire is an assistant professor of urban planning and public policy at the University of California, Irvine's Water Equity Lab. Also with us is Kurt Schwabe. He's a professor of public policy at the University of California, Riverside. His research focuses on economic issues associated with water use and water affordability. Thank you both for joining us. Maura, I'd love to get your reaction to what we just heard from Emma with the Navajo Water Project. How do her comments square with your research around rural and low-income communities? Oh, certainly great to hear um, from uh, from the ground uh, what's happening on Navajo Nation land. It certainly squares with what's happening more broadly across the country. Uh, our lab has assessed water quality violations nationwide uh, and have found the good news is that the vast majority of the U.S. does have some of the best water quality in the world, but the problem is about 7 to 8% of utilities each and every year don't meet federal standards. And so the question is, how do we reach these communities like Navajo nations, like rural low-income communities? And when we say they don't meet federal standards, where are they falling down? Sure. It's sort of across the board. The EPA regulates 90 plus contaminants um, and the most uh, frequent violations tend to be microbial concerns uh, as well as nitrates, although it varies across the country in terms of what types of contaminants each region is struggling with. Why are these communities more likely to be impacted by issues of water safety and access? It can really honestly be um, a lack of resources, a lack of technical, managerial, uh, and financial capacity to treat water, especially um, in the context of Navajo Nation. We're seeing incredibly uh, rural uh, communities that uh, their systems were, a lot of these systems were built in the aftermath of uh, World War II. The federal government did invest heavily in infrastructure uh, on Native American lands at that time. But uh, the systems that they built are now aging out. And so aging infrastructure is not only a challenge uh, faced by Navajo Nation, although absolutely um, is a, a stark one, but it is a challenge facing communities across the country. Maura, I'm hoping you can connect uh, some dots for me here. When we look at communities that are impacted by water access or water safety issues, and and it's something Emma alluded to, Navajo Nation was near um, former uranium uh, sites, and that affected the water quality. How often do we see that happening where low-income communities, rural communities are close to places where there are where there's a likelihood of contaminants from those sites, industrial or otherwise, leaching into their water supply. Sure, that that issue has actually not been looked at uh, in the drinking water context. I would say when we're when we're looking at water equity, it's a combination of how safe is the source water, and then what is the capacity of any given utility to treat its water up to standard. Even if you have uh, source water, let's say that's uh, impaired, as long as you have the adequate capacity to treat it, you can deliver safe water. So it's sort of these two dueling uh, aspects of it. Now, Kurt, there's the quality of water, but then there's how much it costs. How expensive can accessing clean water be for some households? 
Um, quite expensive. And, and, you know, our water system in the United States is very fragmented. So, um, for instance, in California, you've got 4,700 different providers. And, um, and kind of to Mara's point, you, know, you might have poor quality source water, um, but if you're a low-income community, which typically uh, disproportionately fall upon communities of color, you may not have the financing and, and the resources to clean up that water. And this is, you know, partly this has been a change since the 1970s, where back then the federal government contributed about 30 to 35 percent of the funds to help uh, infrastructure projects, clean clean water, et cetera, whereas nowadays they provide about 4 percent. So that to make up that spending gap, uh, local communities have had to make that up mostly. And, and some of the communities just don't have the income to do that. Oh, we got this email from Anne who says, I moved from New York City to Austin, Texas in 2020. I noticed a difference in the water right away. My skin was always itchy and my stomach was upset. The public water in New York City is fantastic. I never paid for water in my life until I moved to Austin. Water should be free. Now, Kurt, some states, including California, have water affordability programs. They work to help low-income families pay for water. How do those programs work? Right. So they, they work very similar to, say, the, the energy programs that, that are, are nationwide. And so in, a, in essence, kind of a general rule is you look at families that are perhaps maybe 200 percent of the federal poverty limit. And the federal poverty limit uh, for a family four is around 24,000 for an individual is around 13,000. And if you meet that standard or under it, then a certain part of your water bill uh, will be subsidized at a very affordable rate. So you see these things, for instance, in Detroit just passed a life plan rate, or Philadelphia has a, a um, tiered assistance program. Uh, and in California, under SB 222, is also developing a statewide program since you know smaller communities just can't afford to help provide um, resources and, and subsidized rates to, to many of the customers, especially when, say, 80% or 70% of the customers are considered low income. How effective are the programs, though, in, in making water more affordable and accessible? Well, that, that is a really good question. And it's something that I've been kind of wrestling with a bit. I mean, so they, they certainly provide um, uh, reduced water rates, right, or subsidized water rates. And so in that sense, you know, you look at these programs and for anyone under, say, 200% of the federal poverty level, um, they're going to get some subsidy. You know, translating that into real effects really hasn't been investigated. And so, you know, you try to look at, you know, does it affect, say, birth weights? Does it affect health in any way? Does it affect the rate of delinquency and such? So, you know, this research, we're doing some research on delinquency right now to look at what determines delinquency. And what we see is that, you know, um, uh, households that have um, less affordable water have higher rates of delinquency. Households that are living in poverty or households that don't engage in rebate programs have increases in delinquency. So, you know, it, it's a great question. Um, we know that they're not paying as much in water, but uh, we don't really know what the real effects are. And I think that's a really uh, important question to, to ask and to pursue. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Remember to have your questions answered in future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Now let's get back to our conversation on safe drinking water by adding a new voice to the conversation. Yvette Jordan is a teacher at Central High School in Newark, New Jersey. She's also a member of the Newark Education Caucus. In 2018, the group joined the Natural Resources Defense Council to sue Newark over the city's lead water crisis, and they won. The city says it finished replacing all 23,000 lead pipes earlier this year. Yvette, welcome to the program. 
Oh, thank you very much for having me. Now, you discovered you had lead in your pipes in your home in 2018. How did you react to that realization that the water in your house was likely unsafe? Well, I was shocked, shocked, and somewhat panicked as well. And so were my neighbors. Was this an issue people in Newark knew about at the time or or were even vaguely aware of? No, no one really knew about it until um, the lawsuit. And we found out about it through NRDC, we meaning Newark Education Workers Caucus, and they informed us and um, about the exceedances were growing and getting higher and higher. And then I had my water tested and it was almost three times of the federal action level. So that was surprising. And then what was even more surprising was our local government reaction. How did they react? Well, the initial reaction was Newark is not Flint. And at the time, um, Flint was seen as, as, as a city really immersed in this horrible crisis in terms of um, water. And they were afraid, They, meaning our mayor, was afraid of having that um, comparison, I guess, with Flint. So he said, everything is fine with our water. So you, as part of the New Work Education Caucus, worked to communicate the scale of the problem to your community. What did that on-the-ground effort look like? Mm, It was really challenging, and challenging so much because our mayor was someone who was really revered in our community and loved, and he was running for um, re-election that May. So he didn't want anything negative appearing um, about Newark. And for us as educators, we were worried about our students and their families and our community. So in terms of engaging the community, it was really difficult because it was our mayor wouldn't do this. How how are you even saying this? So it was a pull and a push and it was hard. We should note that we reached out to Newark Mayor Roz Baraka's office for comment and did not hear back. Eventually, the lead pipes were replaced. How did you get the city to respond to the problem? Well, I think initially when when we said we would sue, um, that and that happened April of 18, and then finally the lawsuit hit in June of 18, they had to um, sit up and take notice, right? And then with all of the press attention, there was so much media attention, not only local and national, we had in- international press coming over here and asking questions. So that coupled with um, the community saying, what is going on and how can we ameliorate this? He had to stand up and do something. And then, of course, lawsuits always make somebody move and act. Now, so that helped. now again, the city has now replaced all of its 23,000 lead pipes in, in three years. And this project was expected to take a decade. So some look at Newark and say this is a national success story, but you, you caution against framing it that way. Why? Well, I do. I mean, everybody, everybody, I'm just saying, and I shouldn't say that, but many people as well as um, 
elected officials are touting Newark as a national model. And it is in so many ways in terms of the speed that it happened, in terms of the jobs um, that were created. All of that is great. However, I think the communities and other neighborhoods should understand, neighborhoods and cities in particular, should understand that without the pressure from the community and and without acting as if you are a partner with your community, change will not happen. And this is really tough in terms of um, my community, which is a black and brown community, predominantly where folks are all, all already disenfranchised. They're feeling, well, this is another thing I've got to worry about and um, something else I've got to do. And I have so, so much on my plate already. Why am I even thinking about this? So in terms of it being a national model, yes, absolutely in certain ways. But I think that the um, attention that Newark has created is also an opportunity. And the opportunity is to understand in this um, case study, um, if you will, that Newark and the community can work together. And unfortunately, a lot of elected officials don't understand how they got there. It's, it's not you getting there, it's you staying there. And the community can fix that as well. That's Yvette Jordan. She's a teacher at Central High School in Newark. Her group, Newark Education Caucus, successfully sued the city alongside the Natural Resources Defense Council in 2018. Yvette, thanks for your time. I thank you for having me. Maura, last week the EPA released guidance on identifying lead pipes in homes and other buildings. What's happened on the federal level to address issues around water quality? Sure, there's been incredible activity, not only revising uh, standards through a revised version of the lead and copper rule, but also resources. Um, There's about $15 billion that will cover lead service line replacements, and that's incredibly helpful. The challenge a lot of cities face is that uh, current funding programs through utilities tend to only cover pipes that the utility owns. In other words, the pipe that runs from the main water line up to the curb. And the problem is, well, what happens to the lead pipes owned by the homeowner? Now, that's a problem that Newark actually worked through. Newark has a lot of valuable real estate, and so they were able to cover entirely the homeowner's portion of the replacement uh, by leasing land under the Newark airport and and other programs. Another challenge is that the EPA has estimated that as much as half of lead in water comes from pipes and homes, not from the lead service line that the utility owns. So if we truly want to eliminate lead in water, we really need to replace all the pipes, not just the lead service lines, also the lines in people's homes. Well, we got this from the CDC site. It says, quote, the United States has one of the safest water supplies in the world. Over 90 percent of Americans get their tap water from community water systems, which are subject to safe drinking water standards. Drinking water quality varies from place to place, but it must meet EPA regulations. Maura, I want to ask you another question about safety. But first, Kurt, 
when we talk about that affordability and accessibility issue, what key things do you think need to be done on the state and federal level to make sure everyone has access to water? Yeah, good question. And, and I think it's really important to kind of understand part of this problem. When you think about affordability, you think about the cost of water and you think about people's ability to pay. And, and if you think about the people's ability to pay, there's, there's significant disparities in terms of their ability to pay across the country, uh, within states, even within regions. So think about poverty rates in America. Uh, there are 34 million um, uh, Americans that live in poverty. And disproportionately, poverty is within communities of color, whereas the average um, uh, rate of poverty in in United States is around 10%. In African-American communities, it's around 18.5%. In Hispanic communities, it's around 16%. So in in those communities, you you can easily understand how paying for water upgrades, for aging infrastructure, for dealing with contaminants of emerging concern is really difficult. And then you couple that with, well, how do these things get paid for? And typically, 85% of the cost of these upgrades, of, uh, et cetera, is paid by ratepayers. Around 10% is the state and 5% is around the federal government. So, you know, improving water quality, improving access to water quality, affordability, really typically usually rests on the ratepayers. And so you can see where certain ratepayers and communities have a hard time. And then you think about why are water rates increasing and, and aging infrastructure is one of them dealing with uh, contaminants of emerging concern. Um, costs of upgrades has, has increased significantly and higher standards for water quality, as well as growing water scarcity. Um, so affordability is an issue. It's, it's, it's increasing in terms of its concern, and it disproportionately affects uh, communities of color and, uh, and low-income communities. That's Kurt Schwabe. He's a professor of public policy at the University of California, Riverside. His research focuses on economic issues associated with water use and water affordability. Also with us, Maura Allaire, an assistant professor of urban planning and public policy at the University of California, Irvine's Water Equity Lab. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.